This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a wild and well-designed life. A couple of announcements before we get to today's episode. First of all, you can download the Cheat Day Blues, the report that I wrote about why I think cheat days are a terrible idea and what we can do instead if we, if we don't want to give up on things altogether, but we don't want to like have this day once a week or once a month that we're constantly obsessing about that totally resets all the progress we've made towards our, our taste buds adapting. Terrible idea. So instead, we can do these other strategies that I outline pretty clearly, I believe, in the Cheat Day Blues Report. And you can get that, and when you sign up for that, you also get a gift subscription to the Big Change Bulldog, my weekly-ish newsletter from Plant Yourself. And here's how you go get the Cheat Day Blues. Just go to plantyourself.com slash cheat day, C-H-E-A-T-D-A-Y, all lowercase. Second thing, I mentioned this last week and in a recent newsletter, Josh and I are looking for organizations that are committed, are serious, are not playing, they're not uh, committed to improving the health of their employees, specifically preventing and reversing chronic disease like hypertension, diabetes, obesity, cancer, stroke, heart attack, all that stuff. And there's a lot of companies out there that are, you know, they have wellness programs, you know, you can get points for going to the gym or for taking the stairs instead of the elevator. We're not talking about these little rinky-dink improvements. We're talking about big change, bringing big change to the organizations, big change to the employees in how they think about their health. And we're looking for a few companies to let us come and talk and, and see if it's going to be a good fit. We've partnered with WellStart Health and you know the Big Change Program some of the participants have gotten amazing results, life-changing results. And with WellStart Health, which is a digital re- disease reversal platform, including telemedicine, we're looking to expand and really bring this message of plant-based nutrition, of, of real physical movement, of mindset improvement to the world. And any company that wants to, to bring us in, or, or a school, or a union, or any organization... Um, it's not just going to affect the health, but it will really change kind of the mindset. This is going to be folks who can resist temptation, who can focus, who have the skills and the fundamentals of health to be really stellar employees, managers, leaders, and so on. So if you're interested, you want to have a conversation, just reach out to me, hj at plantyourself.com. All right, so let's talk about today's episode. My guests are Dave Evans and Bill Burnett. They are the authors of a book that I would hold up and show you right now if you're, if you're watching this on YouTube, but I don't have it because it's so good I lent it to my daughter uh, even though I needed it for this episode because I wanted her to, to read it so she could uh, take advantage of the, the exercises and, and have a beautifully designed life herself. But the book is called Designing Your Life, And it's all about applying the same principles of design that produce the beautiful products that are made by Apple and a lot of other 
you know, design-centric companies, whether it's design of physical products or design of systems or design of websites. You know, the beautiful design in the world around us is not an accident. And it comes largely out of a school of design thinking that was popularized in the United States by Bernie Roth, who has been a guest on this podcast and is the mentor to my two guests today, Dave and Bill. And basically, it's about applying design thinking to life challenges, to life problems, to looking at our problems as kind of juicy, as opportunities to apply this thinking and to lead stellar lives. That we, you know, if we had a life without problems, it would end up being pretty boring and unsatisfying. It's actually the problems that give us the juice to think bigger, to create things we didn't think we could create, to grow into potential we didn't realize we have. And so I wanted to have these guys on the show for a couple reasons. One is because design thinking can help us as we're trying to design our healthy lifestyles, our healthy diets, as we're trying to shift if we feel stuck in one way of being and we want to move into another way. But another thing, actually this is more profound, is many, many, many people in the Big Change program, after they get their health under control, they start looking around at their lives and saying, you know what, now i realize that I want more. I realize I've been settling. I realize I'm in a job I don't like. I'm in a place I don't like. I might be in a family constellation that's been stifling me. Now that I've gotten my health under control, now that I've taken care of myself from the inside, I want to start changing my externals, changing my environment, changing the challenges in my life. And so for, for folks who are already far along on your health journeys, the designing your life principles can come in really, really handy as we look and say, well, what's next? What's the biggest thing I can do with my life right now? So it's a great conversation with Bill and Dave. I'm happy that Skype worked so well, and I'm happy that I can present it to you both in audio format if you're listening on the podcast, or if you go to plantyourself.com slash 243, you can actually watch the video of this as well. So without further ado... Bill Burnett, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So I know we, we may be joined by your, your writing partner, uh, Dave Evans. I'm not sure if that's going to happen at this point, but we'll, we'll hold open the possibility. So if, if he jumps on, people won't be surprised in the, in the middle of the broadcast. Um, and the reason we're talking is you guys have written this book that I have just fallen in love with. Um, which is called Designing Your Life. I keep wanting to say it's called You Are Here because the first thing I always do is take off the dust jacket and yeah. it says you, you are here with a big arrow uh, right, right on the front. And I heard you guys on my friend Peter Bregman's podcast and with, you know, he's got a business-related leadership podcast and you guys were talking about life design and career design. And the more I listened, the more excited I got about the idea of applying these principles to designing your own health, wellness, um, well-being, and, right. as opposed to you know the the wider topic. Um, so I'm so first of all, I'm, I'm hoping that we can accomplish that today. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you know uh, the book wasn't written necessarily from a business point of view, but it was written about how to find a career that you enjoy. And right. That's all about thriving and, you know, and, and, and being happy in the world. Right. And, and this, but the second thing that happened was that I kind of did a bait and switch on myself. <laughs> and I kind of want to talk about the the whole, 
you know, designing the life and, and going beyond the health, just just because so many of the people that I've worked with, and I feel like, you know, there's there's certain people that you work with, you feel like like I, you really nailed it with them, and they got it, and they took it, and they ran with it, and they made it their own. And right. for me, those people in the health domain are now bumping up against they want a better life. They mm-hmm. they may you know all of a sudden when they're they're happier, they have more energy, they're clearer, they're fitter, they're sexier. All of a sudden, those other aspects of their life um, are are no longer a match, and they want to upgrade those as well. So I would love to to, to explore all of that with you. Okay, great. Um, so um, the 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 first thing you you say that just um, I just wanted to cuddle the book was that you said a well-designed life is generative, creative, always evolving. And, and the word that jumped out at me was surprise. So why, why is that important? Why, why did you decide to begin with, with, with that kind of framing? You know, I think that's really just the framing, you know, that designers take about design problems. I mean, if you sign up to be a designer and I've been mostly a professional designer my whole life, um, you, you signed up to try problems, you know, to, to work on problems you've never done before. You know, when I was a design consultant, one day I was working on a, you know, robot uh, toilet. And the next day I was working on you know, the experience of, uh, commuting. So you're always trying new things. And the only way to, um, kind of survive in that kind of a culture is to just be relentlessly curious and always interested in the next problem. And, and so when you apply that to life design, it's the sense of, um, curiosity of potential of possibility i think a lot of a lot of people we talk to who who find themselves sort of stuck they're stuck in a job they don't like or they're stuck in something you know a career that didn't turn out the way they wanted it to have kind of lost the notion of curiosity and 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 then once you get curious again about things there's there's always what uh, dave calls latent wonderfulness in the world there's some place in the thing you're doing that might be exciting and interesting again and so you know, approaching life with that sort of uh, curiosity and th- and trying to think about how to um, explore what might be next. Uh, I think it's re- I think it's just a really important mindset, and it keeps you from um, from getting you know, keeps you from getting stuck or getting stale in the thing you're doing. Gotcha. Looks like looks like Dave's ready to join us. Yes. Can you uh, can you add him? There in? we go. There he is. Sorry, gentlemen. Hey Dave, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Cool. So we uh, we, we we just started, and um, Bill Bill was was helping explain why you began with this idea of curiosity and and sort of wonder and delight and surprise. Great. Um, He's good so, at talking about that. So let's uh, keep keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, you wrote that curiosity helps you get good at being lucky. And it's, the word lucky is so interesting to me because, you know, we have examples of people who have, especially in my domain, in the health domain, who have transformed themselves, who have, you know, become avatars of health and, and wellness. And, and other people who haven't made that journey yet look at them and say, oh, they're just lucky. You know, they, they, or they have something I don't have or they have some genetic gift or some opportunity I didn't get. What's the connection between curiosity and lucky? Dave, why don't you handle that? Okay. That's, the, that's um, yeah, the it, 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 
I, I am pro lucky. You know, it's, it's we often there's the old business phrase: it's good to be good, it's better to be lucky, it's best to be good at being lucky. Can you learn how to be good at being lucky? And we say absolutely, you can. Uh, two things about that. Uh, first of all, interested is interesting. So if you're curious, you actually bring, you know, the gold standard of I have an actual legitimate authentic interest. I think what you're doing over there is interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me. So you look at me and here comes an interested person. And an interested person is interesting to me. Um, you're not skeptical, you're not holding back. I mean that the, the the opening that creates socially is 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 huge. So that's the and curiosity just gives you that for free. And the research, we like to lead into a particular research study that demonstrates this, where they had some people looking at a fake newspaper, and you were assigned, you know, count the number of photographs. And people start doing that. It looks like a really legitimate fake newspaper. But if you look to the side, you'll actually notice the headline saying, hey, the answer is 30, turn it in now, get an extra 100 bucks. <laughs> and so then they, and then they said, people do this task, and they took as long as they took, and almost everybody got it right one way or the other. And then they also asked them in the interviews, among many other things, by the way, how lucky do you think you are? And there's an incredibly high correlation to the people that carefully went through and focused and found the pictures and counted them right and never even noticed the headline sitting right next door to them. They gave them the answer for free and people who thought they were unlucky. So the correlation, of course, there's no causality in research. It's just high correlation is, you know, peripheral vision goes a long way. If you're looking around and noticing what's happening to you and responding to it you will avail yourself of the much greater target-rich opportunity landscape in which you find yourself than the people who are focused too deeply on the task. So what you have to teach people how to do is look up, look around, and be curious. Wow. that's, that's how that's you get a, lucky. That's a beautifully elegant and profound study. I love that. And, and it, you know, with the, the whole idea, we've been teaching this design stuff for, you know, well over 50 years going on 60, you know, uh, and so the, the, the essence of the necessity, you know, Bill's, one of Bill's goals in life is to, to put, you know, a thousand world-class designers on the planet. He's doing more than that, actually. Um, and curiosity is key. But Bill, maybe why, why, why are the best designers always curious? Well, you know, we, our form of design, and let me, let me just do a little quick sidebar. Um, when people hear the word design, they often think of interior design or graphic design or industrial design. Some one, one of the many very wonderful craft versions of this profession. But at Stanford, we teach a different kind of methodology. We call it design thinking to, to, to make it a little different than the craft stuff. And it's really about how do you unlock uh, innovation and potential in, in problems that n- nobody else sees. And so we always say you start with empathy. You don't start with the problem. Somebody says, hey, can you design a new copy cup? And you go, sure. And then you immediately drop that problem and go talk to people in a coffee house and see what's going on and what, what's what's happening. And the only way that you can really have empathy for people, tr- truly go out and non-biasedly observe what's their behaviors, what are they doing, what are their, what are their needs and their latent needs, is to start with curiosity. Because so many times, you know, like if you, if you got your engineering brain on, you kind of know an answer, and you're kind of you're, you're kind of hoping people want to want want the answer that you've got. So you're you're not really observing. You're sort of saying, "Hey, do you want this? Do you want this? Do you want this?" But we teach designers to use that sort of ethnographic and uh, principle of just non-biased observation and empathy with people, and that's often where you discover, oh, it's not about coffee cups it's about this lovely experience of sitting in a coffee shop and chatting with people you don't know and having the steam of the machine in the background so so uh, curiosity is connected to this idea of human-centered design in a very deep way it's all about being um, having empathy and non-biased empathy 
for the people you're trying to design for. And in our case, we're designing for ourselves. So first you got to have empathy for yourself and then you got to go out in the world and say, well, what does the world need? You know, that I might be able to participate in. How, how do I, how do I find something that is interesting to me and interesting to the world? So um, I just wrote down the quest, next question to ask is about empathy for yourself. Cause now if we're, if we're talking about people who are trying to design their way from, you know, obesity to fitness, from disease to health, often, mm-hmm. you know, after a lifetime of watching yourself binge and, and sit on the couch, it's really hard for people to have empathy for themselves and, and their curiosity is kind of shut down by judgment. How do you, how do you get people to, to begin to loosen that up? Mm-hmm. Well, Dave, well, you know, reality is where all the cool stuff happens. Right. We, we, we talk about don't shit on yourself. You know, uh, we won't shit on you. We don't recommend you shit on yourself. And certainly in the category you're describing, you know, you're drowning in shoulds. I should have done this. And retroactive shoulds, future shoulds, present shoulds, you know, you're drowning. Um, and that's not, the truth is that's not helpful. Uh, because should is only a place that exists in your mind. You know, and if trust me, if it all comes out happier, it goes through a place that looks just like this. So, so design actually has this ruthless, brutal commitment to reality. Mm. Um, so the so the so probably the way we encourage people, and I'll let Bill come to this too. Uh, your, your first step of getting better at accepting reality probably isn't going to be finally overcoming that incredibly difficult thing you've you've failed at nine times before for the past seven years. I think I'd start there. I think it's, uh, let, let's set the bar low and clear it. Let's go find something else that's going on with you where we can have um, an honest conversation with reality and, and, and an acceptance reframe about something and make some very, very small experimental short-term change and see how that goes um, to start reinforcing the fact that I actually can make progress. You know, yeah. frankly, a good place to hide on, on challenging goals is behind the Sisyphean rock. It's just too darn hard. You know, this yeah. is a really good excuse. Well, it is too darn hard. Bob, you didn't, you weren't here when, the, when we started, but Howard has taken the best cover off the book and he discovered that little ah. piece that says, you are here. And that's a, that's a sign that, that was put up over our design studio, the loft, about 10, 12, 15 years ago now um, by one of the students. And it was just this, it's this idea of like, well, where does design start? It starts right here with users and some needs. And give me some history of I've never been able to lose weight or I've never been able to, you know, create a discipline around mindfulness or meditation. And that's right. So that's where we start. We don't start with, gosh, you know, guilt or uh, as Dave says, you know, well, I should be able to do this or everybody tells me I should be happy. Um, uh, All that's not not pretty, not very useful. So you just, you know, start where you are. You are you are here. Uh, and then uh, and then find something that you can do. What's available from where you are right now to the next the next step? And this idea of guided mastery, small steps, you know, over and over and over, building com- some kind of resilience around around uh, success is really built into the whole design idea. Great, and that that brings us to so you have your five mindsets, and the first one is be curious, and you know, or curiosity, and the second one bias. Uh, for to action or try stuff, and yeah. this is where I see so many people get hung up around. You know, I've 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 um, I've written books on health and nutrition and science, and you know, it, it kind of worries me at this point when people read the whole thing, like because then <laughs> after they finish that one, then they'll want four more, and then they'll email me and they say, yeah, but I just read this other study that seems to contradict your study, 
Or someone will say, well, I, I, you know, I want to start running, but which watch should I get? Or what kind of inserts in my sneakers? And the one thing <laughs> people great. are not willing to do is do something. Right. Um, so what, you know, what's, what's the, just hit us over the head with the benefits of, of actually, you, you say bu- building is thinking, of actually doing something. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, in, in design, it's this thing where, like you know, 10 smart guys in a room or 10 smart people in a room are going to somehow think up the new innovation as if as if it was just a matter of some cognitive thing. Look, we're, we're in, in the case of health, it's it's really obvious. We are embodied creatures. We live in a body. Our brain, it, it, this thing is. We are just, a body. Yeah, right. Yeah. This thing isn't just the thing that takes our brain to meetings. You know, we, we live inside our body. We have emotional intelligence in our bodies, kinesthetic intelligence in our body. you got to move. you got to move to think in some cases, right? Uh, dancers choreograph new work by move, by moving their bodies. So it's, it's, it's just this funny Western thing that we're going to think our way to being healthier, think our way to being a runner. Like, well, it's just, it's not, it sounds silly when you say it that way, but I, I, you know, we, we run into, I run into students all the time because one of the things you got to learn to be good at if you're a designer, you got to learn to draw, not, not necessarily to become an artist, but just be, to express your ideas. And, you know, there's this whole mental thing of, oh, I'm not an artist. I'm not creative. I can't draw, blah, blah, blah. And, and it's like, start drawing here, draw this line. Now draw another line. Now draw some circle. I mean, it's like, it's just get going because you can't learn a practice by thinking and you're know, running and health and other things practices now you may also need to use the reframe idea so um i just recently went through a reframe when i was in about my health when i was in high school i was an athlete i was a gymnast and i was in great shape and i, I realized about a year ago that all of my kind of get back in shape um, ideas were based around somehow I would end up being 178 pounds and, you know, kind of looking like my gymnast self <laughs> on a pommel horse. Yeah, yeah. I can tell you that's not going to ever happen, <laughs> but I just realized that you know, that was my mental model. And so since that, since I, none of the progress I made looked like it was going to get me there, I kept abandoning my, you know, exercise regimes. I've reframed around fitness just and, and, and well-being. And feeling, you know, like I'm in my body and feeling good about it. And that's been a huge help in trying to maintain some kind of practice around fitness. So sometimes you just have to also change, change what you're thinking because you got the wrong goal. So, so when Bill walks from the bus station onto the campus down Palm Drive, he doesn't spend the whole time chanting, I really should be running. You know, I really should be doing yoga. This is, this is, I mean, I'm just walking, you know, right. as was going, I'm walking, I'm walking here. You know, you know, which actually, you know, research shows that eighty percent as effective as running. You know, um, so I mean, a lot of people are leaving an awful lot on the table uh, relative to this stuff. You know, the thing about do stuff, not think your way through it, is uh, back to set the bar low. I mean, re- really, we the you know we do two things by the way. And we t- both the book and our course are about one of two things: uh, ideas and tools. Ideas you think with, and tools you do. Things you actually act on. And sometimes one's a door to the other. And, and most of the thinking, the way the book is structured specifically, is a set of dysfunctional beliefs, ideas that are either untrue or simply not getting you anywhere, um, that you could reframe into a new way of thinking. And those new ways of thinking become the hinges upon which you swing into a new behavior. And so for some people, they really need to ask a different question. And they're not, how will I lose 100 pounds? You know, or how, how will I do, just like, 
and this is where we really set the bar low, you know, go do something, you know, is this because the big idea about life design we do is there's no one right answer to you. There's not just one perfect Howard and everything else is plan B, you know, B1, B2, C3. You know, there's only one A. I still haven't found it. That's just false. And we make a case for why that's false. And, you know, almost all the people we work with kind of go, yeah, that's really true. I thought that before. I just didn't admit it. And it's a huge relief. The truth is there's more than one right answer to almost all human life questions. There's more than one right answer to how do I get started on getting more fit? More than one right answer to how could I get a little more sleep? You know, uh, there's lots of right answers. Go make some progress. In fact, of course you won't find the better ones. There's no single best for you until you've tried six. So get the hell going. You know, and so we can convince people into that empiricism, you know, that prototyping life by trying stuff, um, they really do start making progress. But you got to let go of the right answer, which is a great place to hide. I haven't found it yet. You know, oh, well, that didn't work because, of course, it didn't. It didn't boil the ocean. It didn't work. Well, it's, I, I, mean, I think for a lot of people, the the primary, the meta refrain is to stop being their own prosecutor, right? So, so if if you're your own prosecutor, because you kind of think that that's the only way you're going to motivate yourself then you're going to look at the six things you tried that, that weren't ultimately satisfying or successful as proof of failure as opposed to proof of your flexibility and your willingness and your, your commitment. Yeah, I think that's, that's why the, the idea of reframing around uh, prototyping, that, that a prototype isn't the solution. I'll try this diet, I'll try that diet, I'll try that. It's not the solution. If the prototype is like, I've got an interesting question. What would motivate me to do a little bit more of this? Hmm, let me try four things. And then, I, and then I prototype those four things. And then I get some data, right? Because what we say, the, the, this, this, this conversation with yourself exists out in reality where the data is, not in your head where you're just making stuff up. And so once you learn prototyping as a way forward, you know, you kind of, we call it failure immunity. It's like if I try a prototype and it doesn't work, I learn something. If I try a prototype and it Prototype mentality. You know, if you, if you read uh, Steve Jobs' biography, he talked about um, the iPhone team brought him the iPhone three times. And three times he said, not good enough, do it again. He said something nastier than that, but... But um, but it was, you know, it was the idea of just keep building it until we get to something that really is insanely great. And designers just know that that's what they're going to do. They don't consider the first prototype a failure because it wasn't the one they ended up, you know, selling to people. They just view it as an iterative process and you just keep working on it. And the nice part about life is um, there is no iPhone 10, you know, in life. There's no there's no final solution. It's just what do you want to do next? And you started with this. You started with the question: Is why is this idea of a generative, creative life so important? Well, wouldn't you like to believe that there's something coming up in the next ten years? Certainly in the healthcare space, you know there's going to be something coming up in the next ten years that's completely unexpected, that changes everything, and that makes the and the possibilities of, of of your life and and you know healthy aging and everything else even more exciting. I'd like to live in a world where. I don't know what's coming up in 10 years, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be cooler than what I'm doing now. And so once you start down that path, um, then the good of being lucky and noticing all these other things that are up you know, right next to the thing you were looking for. And, um, and the kind of the, this idea of serendipitous events. You know, when we talk to people about their careers, 
Nobody says, well, I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I was 15, and then I just majored in that in college, and now I am that, and I've been doing it for 40 years, and it's exactly what I, what I set out to do. Almost everybody has a twist and a turn or a serendipitous meeting or this, I took this class because it was the only one that fit, and that changed my life. So, you know, that's kind of a fun way to live, frankly, versus the, you know, get up, get on the train, go to work, get on the train, go home, go to sleep, lather I mean, until you die. Your your middle school aptitude test bill didn't didn't have laptop hinges on it. It had nothing to my no. It probably had something like Bill should pay more attention in class. Yeah, I daydreams too much. Yeah, you know Howard, I um, you know our stuff is leaking out on the campus and now on other universities and all over the place and onto your podcast. And so one of the places I go hang out is the Graduate School of Business, where a bunch of people who are pretty sure they are the sharpest people on the planet tend to hang out. Um, <laughs> and I'm in, I'm in front of the incoming class of 400 new, you know, freshly minted Stanford MBAs, you know, and because these are strategic people, they're going very top down driven folks, you know, very, very carefully selected, ridiculously low admission rates. They've all got, you know, three to seven years of business experience. They really know what they're doing. Um, and so you can't insult them by assuming they don't know what they're doing. Um, and then I asked the question, so how many of you want to work on something 10 or 15 years from now that we can't talk about because it doesn't exist yet? Everybody raised their hand. You know, kind of go, great. How are you going to plan that? Show me, show me the really cool top-down, you know, McKinsey consulting strategy for getting to the place that doesn't exist. So, look, we're making this up as we go along. We're just trying to get good at it. So, this is this this life design stuff um, is a is learning the improv skills necessary to be really good at making it up as we go along. You know, because we are inventing this incrementally, one step at a time. Where you know. The, there are two things I think really get in people's ways. One is there's an, a, too much engineering thinking running around where we can solve everything. Science has been so powerful and so effective, we actually inadvertently came to believe we can fix or solve, i.e. get the right answer to anything. So you ask questions that are all singular. Have you figured it out yet? And you, have, you, have you hit the goal? You know, as though there's an end point that's definitive for everything. It's just not true. You know, where am I today on the never-ending progressive pathway to my future somewhat better self? Right. That's all well, we're I, talking about. And I, I think one of, the, one of the problems that people have in embracing this is like what I guess I'll cause like a, call a causation bias. Sure. That some, somehow when we look at it in retrospect or, you know, so my, um, my teaching and business partner – um, in the program that we run around helping people get fit, uh, went from being 420 pounds to being a, a, um, a competitive ultra athlete. And there's a certain inevitability to each step, like when you tell it as in a narrative. But like when he was going through it, he had no idea. Like he got on the weight machine because he saw an article and he started, he started walking outside because the, the motor on the weight machine would would burn out because he was too heavy. Like, you know, everything was an accident, but people have a really hard time believing that he didn't have a master plan. Right. You know, we, we have people come into our class and designing your life class for the senior juniors and seniors, and we call them mentor visitors and they tell their story, but we tell them, you got to tell it the real way. Not, not the looking back how it all makes sense now, but like I was, I was graduating with my degree in political science and I didn't have any idea that what to, what I was going to do with that. I was terrified. Yeah. I was terrified. And then I got this job and I met this guy and then it turned out, you know, the stuff I knew how to do was really good when it came to explaining this technology thing. And I ended up in a marketing job 
but that startup went public. And then, you know, and then I met this other guy and his name was Steve Jobs. And he was like, and they go on and on and on. And, and the students go, you didn't have a plan at all, did you? And they go, no, I just responded in an authentic way to the things that showed up. And now well, I did, I did have a plan. It just didn't matter. Yeah. I had a plan, but it, none, none of it was true. So, so for most people, I mean, there are, um, uh, Bill Damon, who's one of our uh, wonderful colleagues here at Stanford, who has a, a, a center for the study of adolescence, has studied, you know, purpose and, you know, purposefulness and how do people find their purpose, how do they find their, their, um, their, their goals in the world. And, you know, his research says less than 20% of the people have a single identifiable purpose or passion that kind of organizes their behaviors. Most people are, are just trying to find it as they go. And, and a lot of the people that we talk to, students and, 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 and folks in business that we've worked with now, they say, you know, I got four or five things I'm really excited about. This passion thing doesn't really help me because I can't organize around that. And we say, that's great. You don't have to organize around that. Just organize, you know, we substitute, I think, curiosity for passion and, you know, find, find out what's next for you. And the world is, um, you know, changing and, and, and developing. I mean, if you were in, you, if you were a computer science student at Stanford five years ago, you couldn't take a class in machine learning because it didn't exist yet. Right. <laughs> And now it exists and now everybody wants to take the machine learning class. You know, you couldn't plug into an, you couldn't write a piece of code and in 10, 10 minutes be plugged into the AI engine that runs Watson, uh, the supercomputer that, you know, won the Jeopardy challenge. And now you can, any one of my students can, can access the most powerful AI on the planet with about 10 minutes of coding. So stuff is changing so fast that it doesn't even make that much sense to have a plan. I mean, have a, have a rough idea of where you want to go yeah. maybe or what's next. But um, Dave's right. I think life's an improv, and it's never been a better time to improv because there's so many right. interesting things to do. Right. And there's a difference, though, between not having a plan and not working your whatever your current plan is hard. Because yeah. I, I, yeah. sure. I, can, I can hear people listening to this and saying, okay, cool, because now I don't need a plan. I don't have to get up and run. I don't have to go and have broccoli and brown rice for lunch. But you still have to do the work in front of you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and no, this is this, yeah. This is this is not a recommendation to be whatever. You know, we. <laughs> I mean, uh, probably my least favorite word, particularly in a certain pronunciation, is whatever. You know, like um, as a, that's not curious, by the way. That's disengaged. You know, it's kind of like you know, I'll just wait for it to happen to me. You know, you know uh, that that sort of passive fatalism is crazy. You know, you've got. You, I mean, trust me, this design stuff's a ton of work. You know, I mean, we have to apply our own theory to the way we teach and to our own programs. And I'm not, you know, not infrequently heard to say privately to Bill, you know, Bill, this is it's an awful lot of work. Can we, can't we just can't we just do it the same way again? Can't we just, you know, just not not think and not be empathy, empathetic and not have to experiment? Can we just can we just do it the same way for a while? It's so much easier. No, we can't do that. Uh, so if you're going to live with intentionality. You know, you have to you have to deliver on the day job. You got to go out there and hit your goals, personal, professional, familial. You know, um, and and not working hard at it doesn't give you any opportunity. So you got to be going somewhere. Yeah. You know, you have to be in motion to encounter those other, you know, crafted serendipities. I mean, we're trying to help people curate their curiosity. That's not that's curiosity isn't just a convenient genetic advantage that's going to you know send wonderfulness your way. You got to you got to really put out. But it's putting out with this humble respect for the fact that there are 7.5 billion people out there and this future is not actually in my control. 
So rather than like throwing my hands up and not caring, I'm actually way more attentive than somebody who's on plan. Somebody who's on plan only has to know one thing. Somebody who's planfully and purposefully living into a target-rich environment is working harder and more attentive than even the highly plan-led people. Wow, that's that's really really helpful. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just being speechless for a second, so, which, which which I'm allowed to do thanks to the miracle of editing. It's, um, it's been recommended. I tried that someday. Yeah. <laughs> The, um, you know, the, uh, there's an old, I think there's an old expression I think is attributed to Eisenhower that, uh, planning is everything. The plan is nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, get, uh, particularly if you're talking about teams and we suggest people do this as a team, a design team is always stronger than an individual designer. We, we know that from our own research. So we say, Hey, get, if you got, if you got, if you read the book and it's interesting to you and you want to start, you know, doing some of the exercises or doing some of the, uh, uh implementing some of the ideas do we'll get a couple, two or three people together, call it a book club. We call it a design team and do the stuff together. And so, um, planning, you know, kind of planning, uh, Hey, let's all do an odyssey plan this week and then we'll report back. Hey, let's all keep a gratefulness journal and then let's report back having these, you know, plans that kind of hold people accountable to some action in the world. Super fantastic. But then if something, you know, that that's, that's, that's the, I counted all of the headlines in the article, Tony, thank you. I got the right number 32, but there's also that, you know, that, but keep open for the, you know, keep yourself open that there's maybe something that's slightly off plan or somebody joins the group and they got a whole new idea and it's way better than the idea you had. So be willing to sort of let go of, of that plan or find the thing that says collect the under, extra $150 because that, that idea of luckiness or latent wonderfulness that I talked about, uh, I think just before you got on Dave, um, that's where the good stuff is. The good stuff, mm -hmm. you know, all the good stuff in my life came from a chance encounter uh, with somebody. But if I actually look back on it, yeah, it was a chance encounter, but I did put myself in the right place at the right time. I, I was swimming in, a, in an ocean that happened to have that kind of fish in it, or I was, you know, participating in some sort of activity where this, you know, quote, serendipitous thing might have happened. Um, I have a colleague here, a wonderful colleague, who's kind of my my mentor, Bernie Roth, uh, who wrote a great book, by the way, called The Achievement Habit, which I don't know. Right. If he, was, he, he was he was on the podcast a yeah, couple yeah, months he's, ago. He's amazing. He's fantastic. And so you've heard his theory of all reasons are bullshit. Bull, I don't know if you can bullshit. say that on your podcast. Well, he, uh, he can and you can, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I just, I just, now now's when it, I make a note in, in, in my notes to put this as an ex explicit episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, his, his idea was just, look, we, 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 in retrospect, we cherry pick the facts that make us look pretty good about how we got to where we are. But if you really sat down and you were rigorous about it, you know, there's a hundred other ways that you, you know, that you could select facts that would, which would get you to the same location. So, um, that's the, you are here part in our philosophy is like, um, it, it is important to be reflective. It is important to learn from your experiences. Sometimes I think we have experiences and don't spend enough time just to try to extract what did we learn from that. And, and so that, you know, so sometimes we end up repeating things over and over again. But, but you know, mostly it's about having an attitude of looking forward and having, you know, a sense of whether or not um, something's working for you. And that gets into the idea of do you really even know your own, your own value system? Have you written down a work view and a worldview? Have you made something just a little bit more explicit so that when uh, a new opportunity comes by, you can go, hey, that doesn't really fit. Or, or maybe that does fit. And fit, fit against what? Against what rubric, right? So, you know, we, we aren't against 
a little bit of planning and a little bit of um, reflection and thoughtfulness. That's important, actually, in, in the design thing, because you want to learn from, from past uh, designs, right? But, um, but we, our, our, our system, our world that we live in is way too rational, skeptical. That's what we're all trained to be, rational, skeptical, really good, particularly at the university, really good at dissecting arguments and, and breaking them down into smaller and smaller arguments. Um, and we're really good at, uh, you know, proposing, you know, planning and, 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 and scheduling and stuff. And, and then when we hit the reality of life, those things don't work very well. And then people get frustrated and, and then they get stuck. And, uh, and mostly what I've been happy about is as we go around the country and do book, book events and things, well, people will come up and say, hey, thank you. The book really helped me get unstuck. I was stuck on this gravity problem or I was stuck on this, this dysfunctional belief. And you guys kind of outed it for me. And I realized, you know, that I didn't have to think that way. And thank you very much. Now I'm in motion. They all describe themselves as moving forward. The, you know, the metaphor of motion is is the opposite of being stuck, and and that's lovely. You know that that, that this stuff is working that way. Yeah. So I just remembered why why I went silent there because there was a thought that was you know like a cork and it just it just popped. It came back. Which is that um, the, the the basis of the work that I do is is basically looking at sort of net natural human environments and natural human behaviors. Like what are we basically evolved or designed to do? So around food, there's, you know, there's, there's processed food and then there's more natural foods. And what are the quantities around motion? You know, were we meant to sit in the gym and isolate biceps or were we meant to walk and run and climb? And it occurs to me that when you're talking about, um, you know, be, having target rich environments, that's what, what triggered this idea. Like we evolved to to walk around and hunt and gather in environments in which there were patterns that we absolutely had to pay attention to and learn from. And if we just, you know, if, if we weren't prepared for serendipity, we would starve. If we weren't prepared for, oh, there's a, you know, there's a better food source or it looks like a storm is coming in. If, if, we, if we just put our heads down and we, we aren't aware of all these environmental inputs, which I guess would come out as sort of, excuse me, a sort of gut feelings as opposed yeah. to computer output. Um, you know, there's this naturally attainable quantity of uh, of serendipity that is that we have to pay attention to if we want to live in reality. I mean, that's how we got here. You know, we we, we should be Neanderthals, you know, because they're bigger, stronger, faster, and they totally should have won the genetic <laughs> war, and they didn't. You know, the smaller, weaker, squishier Homo sapiens did because they were clever. And now you could argue they were Machiavellianly, you know, evilly clever, but or, or they were just, you know, good at this serendipity management stuff. But that involves paying attention and looking around. I mean, it, there might be a negative evolutionary bias to that attentiveness, which is really about do not be eaten by the saber-toothed tiger, as opposed to, you know, capture this cool thing going on on the web that I just found. Um, but it's still the same fundamental engine. And we, we work a lot with helping people, you know, frame things in the in, in the positive space rather than the negative space. But it really is about paying attention and looking around um, and at least moving to this zero valence. Like, like you know, the, I mean, the world doesn't actually have an attitude about you. I mean, you know, you're overweight. Well, gravity is actually not upset. You know, it's not like trying to weigh you down. You know, <laughs> um, it's just true. I mean, there, I mean, one argument is there's no such thing as bad news or good news. There's just news. I mean, it's simply true so if we can get to this this place of um 
acceptance, which is sort of what we call step zero, you know, then then you've got a lot of opportunity. And and the, and that's why this serendipity, this attentiveness, this creativity, uh, their prerequisite is a willingness to look around and just see the way things are. And one of, one of the things I think you guys have done in the book, although I, I didn't see it explicitly, is you've kind of taken all the emotional juice out of the word problem. Right. So, so like when I, when I, when, when my friends and I talk about our problems, right. You know, our blood pressure goes up, the veins in our neck stand out and you're, you're speaking of a problem in a much more technical, impersonal way. Like this, there was no ego in the book. It felt like it, in a sense, the book is like this, um, you know, this medical procedure to kind of like drain a cyst or something to kind of drain the ego and the personal <laughs> out true. of, you know, out of all this stuff that I have so much juice about. Like if I don't, what if I don't run this marathon under four hours, what will that mean? You know, could you, could you talk a little bit of maybe about like well, wh- whether that, you were sort of intentionally sort of drained <laughs> in, in negative emotion yeah. out of the whole process? Yeah, what what that will mean is that you're just ran your, you know, a marathon and, and you've got whatever time you've got. I mean, it doesn't I guess it doesn't mean anything other than, um, hey, I set some goals and did I, you know, did I accomplish them on this next on this next uh, trial, the, ne- the next marathon? You know, I don't know that we were thinking of. um taking the ego out of the problems, but I think yeah, I, never, I never thought of that, but I think, I think he's right, but I'm kind of, yeah. just kind of cracking me yeah, up. I think, I think what, what happened was by approaching problems, um, again, when you sign up to be a designer as a career, you've signed up to say, Hey, about every three months, someone's going to hand me a problem I've never worked on before. And I got to have a process for figuring out how to do some kind of innovation or solution on it. So I can't get I can't get too wrapped around my axle about whether I know how to do it or not. I just need to know how to approach doing it or whether um, I even care about it, frankly, and then learning, learning how to become uh, expert in that domain and then learning how to make a contribution. So in the domain of us, you know, I think part of part of what we're thinking is, well, let's get a little more expert in us, because a lot of times, uh, particularly with our younger students, and even even, you know, I've run into lots of people in their mid, you know, mid 40s and stuff who still are stuck and they're stuck in their success. Or they're stuck in their their, you know, they, everybody tells them they have a great job, but they don't like their job. But like learning to just check out learning about us, learning about who am I? What am I really want? Is that my mom's voice telling me to be a doctor or my real voice telling me to be a doctor? And then um, and then trying to like, yeah, as Dave said, live, um, live exclusively in the reality of what's going on. It kind of doesn't matter what your ego wants or doesn't want. Um, you know, let me the- jump in. You know, I think it's almost like an ego reframe. As we're talking about, I realize, you know, I've, I'm often heard to say most people are as happy as their perceived differential between the way things are and what they had in mind. <laughs> you know, and that gap equals how happy I deserve to be. Has the world conformed to my intention? Um, and that's really not the stance that we recommend as designers. I mean, I actually have a ton of ego and my ego is not wrapped up in closing that gap. My ego is wrapped up in, you know, am I engaged and do I get to play and are we making any progress? I mean, I got a ton of ego wrapped up in that. 
Um, no one's ever accused me of having a small ego. The uh, the um, <laughs> uh, Bill will attest to this. The uh, yeah. but it's but it's not wrapped around this. Here's the way it should have been. You know, back to shoulds. Um, and that is actually the way most people live now. The, and the goal setters. In fact, some people. Say, well, gee, you disagree with Duckworth and 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 Dweck on grit and and mindset. No, no, we don't disagree with them at all. Um, but you don't want to turn into your goals. You want them to serve you, right? The goals serve you, not you serve the goals. Um, so I think e- ego about being effective. This is where actually, probably ideologically, I'll let Bill speak to this as the executive director. But you know, while we lean into curiosity as sort of the power pill, the dilithium crystal that energizes this whole thing, you know, the ideological center is biased to action. And we say a problem is something you can act on. If you can't do anything about it, it's not a problem, it's a circumstance. And so we're always asking the question, what are we going to do? Yeah, that's great. What are we going to do? Let's go do something. Let's go learn something. Let's go do something. So if I'm focused on doing um, and my ego is what are we going to do, uh, then that puts me in a different place. So I think it's, I think it's a doing-based ego rather than a judgment-based ego. Right. You, you know, you guys just answered these two problems, or these, these two obstacles that people come to me with all the time that I have until now really regarded as kind of deep psychological issues to be like really kind of get entangled with. And I think your, your top level solution kind of gets to them. Let me throw them to you and see, see if you agree. One is you mentioned like, is that my mom's voice, you know, sending me to medical school? There's a lot of people that I work with that once they start taking care of themselves, they go through this existential crisis and they realize that they have never in their life done anything for other than someone else's approval. And they have no idea who they are or what they want or what they want to be. And so it's like, it's almost like that part of them is still a baby. It was never allowed to grow up. And when they get to that, that, um, that gap, it's terrifying. It's like, okay, like I've, maybe I've been depressed for all these years, but at least I was depressed because I was following a plan. Now, I've let go of everything and I have no idea who I am or where to go or what I want to do. And it it felt like reading your book that you just had, okay, cool. That's where you are now. Take these, you know, be curious, take little steps and you don't, you don't have to get it right. Yeah. But one of my, one of my heroes is a guy named Parker Palmer who's a uh, educational reformer and well-known in his field, lovely guy. Uh, and in his book, Let Your Life Speak, which is his little sort of memoir of, dis- of personal vo- calling discovery, he says, I suddenly came to the realization that I was doing a very noble job of living somebody else's life. <laughs> a lot of people come to that realization the hard way. Right. And, and, and he could have had a lot of ego wrapped up in that. And he might oh, have- oh, yeah, because his heroes were Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King, and he needed to go change the world of education the way they did. Um, and he's actually ended up having a huge effect, but not by looking like them, but looking like him. Yeah. Right. You know, I, think, uh, I think he's, he's incorporated that into like, you know, living the questions. Yes. As, yeah, as opposed to living the answers. Yeah, it's a big it's a big problem. And it gets I mean, and if, if if you're 45 and, you know, married and kids and the mortgage and, and all this, all the other stuff, and then you suddenly go, hey, wait a minute, this is this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. What my God, what have I done? Um, there's a lot of collateral damage. And so what we're what I'm hoping for is like, I want to grab these kids when they're 22 <laughs> before they leave Stanford and go, don't end up there. You know, the unexamined life really isn't worth living. So, so, you know, start asking yourself some hard questions. 
And um, I think more and more, you know, we, we're finding our, our students are coming in a little bit younger, a little bit more over-parented maybe, or a little, a little less incident than they used to be. And so, um, yeah, getting, getting clear on at least what you're not. You know, I'm not trying to be my dad. I'm not trying to be make my mom happy by going to medical school. I'm not trying to do these other things. It's a, it's a good first step, but it doesn't replace the problem of well, then what am what am I actually right? What what happens there? But there we go. I mean, I'll, I'll go phenomenological on you. Then I you know then the existentialist phenomenologist in me says, well, action is in the world. Essence precedes you know existence. So go be in the world and then and then react honestly to what you're what you're experiencing and you will find you know what's the next thing what's the next thing what's the next thing um or you could do it from a different point of view you could be you know spiritually inspired or or psychologically inspired but you got you do have to get to the part where you go wait a minute turn down the amplitude and all those voices in my head what do i want yeah yeah what do i want so how there's thing one you said you had two realizations there was thing one we agree yeah. clearly you know we're on we're on board What's thing two? Right. Thing two is, is the thing that stops people is they will make a commitment to get healthy. So, you know, okay, I'm only going to eat um, whole food plant-based. And they do it for three days. And then on day four, they cave and they have a cheeseburger. And they have all this disappointment that it didn't work. <laughs> right? And it becomes another notch on their belt of failure and yeah. another... You know, another bit of proof that nothing's going to work. And you know, I said, as I said, that's that's something that just stops people. They'll 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 sabotage themselves right up front, and they'll frame it as a, a deal breaker. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and I think you know your, your concept of you know don't overcommit. Try a bunch of things you know, instead, like sort of. You're, you're, you, you mentioned this in terms of the uh, the job search, where you're exploring yeah. offers as opposed to looking for a job. The Perfect. same, the same yeah. can be true for I'm, I'm approaching, um, you know, approaches and strategies for getting healthy as opposed to finding the one thing that's going to definitely guarantee me success. Well, and if See, I'm, uh, I'm having have a eating and, 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 you know, poor eating, saying, okay, from today forward for the rest of my life, I will only eat, you know, um, what was the Michael Pollan thing, you know, eat food, mostly plants, right. not much. Not so, so much, yeah, right. Yeah, so, uh, wow, that's a pretty, you know, if you look at the psychology of behavior change, the chance of that working is about zero. But if, <laughs> our, if you, our thing would be, say, all right, let's, if you want to do the health thing and you want to do the food thing, set the bar low. What, what, I'm, I'm going to only eat 50% um, of my diet for the next, for the next five, seven, five to seven days, one week, will be plant-based. Have as many cheeseburgers as I want, but 50% of my diet will be plant-based. Okay, get to the end of that week. How did I do? Yeah, I was good, but maybe it was only 40%. All right, next week. Let's keep it again. 50%. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. You know, rinse, repeat until until I've, I've, I've figured out that 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 a, a small incremental change is sustainable. Now, what's the next step? And what's the next step? Because it's a long game. You know, if you if it took you a year to move from junk food to a you know, an 80 percent healthy diet. So what? So what? It took a year. That's it. Now, a year later, you are now eating a significantly better 
you know, diet, and and that's going to have all sorts of downstream effects. The problem with the diet stuff and the and the and the physical and mental stuff is, it takes months and months and months to see the impact. And we're 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 raised in a society where we want sort of an instantaneous, you know, we want the lose twenty pounds in one day and feel great diet. It's, it seems to be on the cover of every women's magazine. Um, it's just it doesn't work. It's it's not possible. <laughs> so try something really simple. You know, so or, or, the, go ahead, Dave. Your, your point, Howard, you know, it didn't work. God, that's a powerful phrase. You know, um, i.e., the whole point was complete satisfaction of a predetermined goal, and anything short thereof is a failure. You know, I'm, I'm not a growing person on the way to get somewhere where partial credit counts. Um, you know, and see, if you really get, you know, design, one of the reasons I think we've been successful, even in, you know, the postmodern pluralistic secular university about helping people figure their lives out, which people, you know, 20 years ago said you can't do that uh, because it violates autonomy or what have you. Um, well, hey, we're just process guys. We have innovation principles. You know, hey, do you want to have some ideas? We don't really care what you do with them. It's up to you. We're totally agnostic. Yeah, sort of. Um that agnosticism actually comes with some strong biases in favor of, you know, you can get better. We're optimistic. We think there's uh, discoveries to be had out there by trying these empirical experiments we call prototypes, which means I really believe in growth. So we're pro-growth guys. So do you really want to ask the 75-pound overweight seven-cheeseburger-a-week guy what the best answer is? Maybe part of that embodied learning that Bill talked about is, you know, maybe, you know, a bushel of broccoli from now, you know, after Easter, um, you would actually be thinking differently about this. You know, um, why don't we just try to get to the core? You know, I mean, runners know this thing. I mean, you know, you can't go out and run a marathon. You can't, you can't double your time. What you can do is you can look ahead. You can see the stop sign 200 yards away and go, I'm just going to the stop sign. Yeah, I'm just going to keep this pace. I'm going to keep this current pace till the stop sign. And then we'll see, you know, that, that incrementalism absolutely works. And it's a, it's a huge change of mind to actually live into literally a growth mindset uh, that says, I'm on my way, uh, I'm on a path called life. I'm never really done. In fact, prototyping is a way of life. This is when we really level this thing up and you know, kind of goes in here. You know, design, you know, the, the last chapter of the book begins to touch on that. Like, um, I was in Seattle, actually, the night of the first presidential debate at the town hall of Seattle, where they gather people from all walks of life. And I followed... Literally, Donald and Hillary's first public debate. I thought, this is going to be a disaster. Number one, nobody's going to come. Number two, they're all going to be in a really bad mood. <laughs> um, and everybody came and they were cheerful. It was astonishing. Um, and one guy raises his hand and he, in, at the end of we're doing Q&A. And he goes, hey, Dave, got a question. Yes, what? About 55-year-old guy. He goes, this, this prototyping thing. Yeah, what? He goes, you could do that all the time, huh? And I go, yeah, you could. And some more questions. And then he raises his hand again. In, in a, and he goes, um, and then he raises his hand again and goes, hey, Dave, what? He goes, that's a big deal, isn't it? And I go, yeah. And he goes, no, no, really? It's a big deal. And I go, yeah. And then he goes, oh. <laughs> that's where the upside is. Right. And you know, one, one of the things that I love and I'm absolutely going to steal, of course, give you credit for, is the failure reframe exercise. Um, because you know, so one one of the one of the um, things we do, um, my business partner Josh and I, he he started a group called the Missing Chins Run Club, 
It's a it's a secret Facebook group <laughs> for um, you know ex ex country backslapping beer drinking country boy fat guys who are in the process of getting into shape. And I, I don't right. know if you, so they they were on uh, sixty minutes last week. A seven uh, not sixty minutes. They were on Good Morning America oh, fun. for a for a seven minute segment. It was beautiful. And so I'm I'm part of this secret Facebook group, even though I've um, you know I haven't had the privilege of losing over a hundred pounds myself. And what I see is like the whole, a whole bunch of new people have come on because of the, uh, the the publicity, and so they're they're sort of getting onboarded in a very organic way by the existing members. And so they'll they'll say like they'll tell their story, and then they'll say, okay, this week I'm going to do this, and the existing members jump on to comment and say like, don't tell us what you're going to do, show us what you just did, like show us your Strava run, show us what you're you know do your your take a picture of your watch after going for a walk. And they, they're very resistant to post their first run or their first ride. So a guy just posted today mm. 1.6 miles in 30 minutes. And he's, he's ashamed to post that because he perceives he's going to be judged by all these athletes. And that's like exactly right. what they're telling him to do. Right. It's reality therapy, yeah. But then I, <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining, I'm hoping that that community is going, nice job. You know, completely. What, totally. Whatever the whatever, whatever the thing is you've done. Yeah, yeah. Don't, right. Yeah. Don't tell us what you're going to do. Show us what you did. Um, there's a thing we talk about in the in the D school is don't you know, show, don't tell. Don't we don't teach through telling through lecturing. We teach through an engaged you know methodology of of you do some work, I do some work. We talk about the work, we critique the work, then we do some more work, right? And we show each other what we've done because um, design's a it's a context board. You can't learn it by lectures. Um, that's great. That's great. Um, by the, by the way, I, I was working on a, a wearables project here, a wearables research project here at Stanford. And, um, just to t- tell all your, all your folks in, in, uh, podcast land, uh, the data on wearables is people who have, uh, you know, wearables and fitness counters and they, they track their runs and their fitness and their, their steps and everything. Um, so far the data says they gain weight. They gain more weight than people who just exercise. There seems to be some weird, you know, uh, I've got the fitness tracker now. I don't have to worry about actually getting healthy or something. Anyway, the, the evidence is pretty. Or bad. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about it. I'm just thinking about it too much. You know, yeah. they get enough steps. They get enough steps. Man, I really want a piece of cheese. <laughs> yeah, right. Five, yeah, 500 steps equals a Snickers bar. Right? There you go. There you go. Yes, the rewards. Right. Are, yeah. Right. And we and one thing we you know we talk about it, and I think this is this is. Uh, a page from from your book is like, what's the problem you're solving for? If yeah. the problem is I'm trying to lose weight, that's not a very interesting problem. And it's and when you solve it, you're not happier. So we, we, we look at, you know, we really look at like, what, you're, what do you want your life to be like? What do you want to be able to do? And so instead of looking at weight loss and diet, we look at performance and say, yeah. okay, so now all the stuff that we're going to yeah. focus on is is uh instrumental it's not it's not the goal right great cool um god there's so much more to talk about and we're almost out of time um just a little quickly look through what i definitely want to get out of you guys um let's talk about the failure reframe exercise because i think it is going to be so valuable for people and and not everyone pays me to help them so let's get this out into the into podcast land Okay. You say what? What? What is it, and and how, how do you use it? Good, Dave. 
Well, it's it's um you know okay so so something didn't go the way you hoped it would go something didn't work out very well, ergo it was a failure. Now before you decide what to do with that, right? We often say you know be very careful of your questions because your questions and you know and 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 so the answer is contain belief systems. So what do you believe about this failure? Was this in fact really a one-off and it, it you know it, it's not a precedent? Just okay, I forgive myself, I'm done. You know, or this is a, a, a foible, something to work around, or is this something really to solve and work through? So the, the most important thing about your, your failure logging is, you know, what is the nature of this particular failure and what's the upside of me fiddling with it around at all? That's the key thing. That's all we're trying to do is get, not have you get trapped on the not helpful failure. You know, if, if we position failure immunity and failures as learning goals, right, then the failure I want to focus on is the failure that has some learning upside. That's it. Just make sure you're, you know, giving yourself a chance to get the most out of the situation and not giving yourself a chance to get distracted on the wrong thing and just feel worse for no good reason. And we, and we play off of um, another piece that's connected to this, and that's um, some research from Gallup and other people that's, that basically say the upside is, uh, is doubling down on your strengths, not trying to you know, improve your weaknesses. So most people, I don't know, in our Western society, it's like, well, I'm not very good at this, so that's what I should work on. I should work on this. And uh, study after study after study shows that, you know, trying to improve a weakness, uh, you know, I'm a professor, so if you've got a C minus kind of, you know, skill set and you work on it really hard, what's your, what's your best upside? B minus? So what? If you've got an A skill set and you work on it really hard, you can be off the charts good at that. So this idea of looking at, you know, what, what failure is actually teachable? What failure, you know, could I, could I learn from and make better? is sort of part of this notion of work on your strengths. That's where, that's where all the upside is. Work on your strengths. If you want to change, if you want to change something, um, play to your strengths. Um, you've got some, some weaknesses you just need to minimize. Right. Or work you, around. And yeah, and work around. And you need to be careful, you know, in, in real life, you need to be careful that you're not um, hiding uh, a problem, you know, uh, with this philosophy. Um, the the big, big grant study, the study of human adult development from the Harvard class of 1938 that's wrapping up now, and they're, they're publishing their findings. One of their findings around, around um, happiness is the one thing that derailed some of the men in this giant study, 90-year study, uh, was addiction. If you fall into an addiction, for most of these men, it was alcohol because that was their era, the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, that's a problem you have to solve because you cannot be healthy and thriving and, and have great relationships and everything else if that's if that's a problem. So I'm not saying you know that you don't work on on serious problems. If you have them, you have them. If you have depression, if you have anxiety, if you have alcoholism or any of that sort of stuff, and that's getting in the way of your life. Get off of our philosophy. Go find some really good help and get get healthy, because our stuff only kind of works from point of healthy plus. Uh, it it's not a it's not a solution to a, a serious you know mental health problem. We don't do therapy. Right. Yeah. yeah, we don't do therapy. Yeah. Right, and and at the same time, like when people are down on themselves or depressed, or they look at themselves in the mirror and they're disgusted and you know, self-critical, like these, the, the people who are, are the most frustrated are the people who are really successful in, in the other domains of their life. Yeah. Like they can't mm. figure out like, what's wrong with me? I've got a good job. I'm a professor. I've, uh, right. I've made a lot of money. And, 
and like and that idea of, you know, I guess appreciative inquiry or looking for the bright spots of like, what am I really good at? Like there's, it's almost like there's this firewall that they are, they're unable to bring all of their strategies that they use to be, to, you know, to not blow their, their money and, you know, in an investment or in a startup, they, they can, they can do that, but they can't, they can't figure out how to apply it to, to health. And I think, you know, all of us have so many strengths yeah. that we simply, um, you know, we're, we're used to them or we ignore them or they, we, we, we undervalue them because they just seem much less interesting than, than all our foibles. Yeah. I mean, humans are, humans are complicated and kind of weird. Well, that's where we again see this thing about the hidden belief system. Um, so if somebody, let's say I'm, I'm in office hours and somebody's bringing that to me, like, look, and I'm killing it here, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm, and you know, but I'm a whale for God's sake, you know, what that, what, what the hell is going on with me, you know, um, you know, and and so the question is, you know, why can't I solve that, or what the heck, what the heck is wrong with me that this one thing is so elusive to me? Um, and it's said with this self disgust, right, the self judgment, and I, and I would say from a reframe point of view, so apparently, if I understand you right, Howard, what you're telling me is you believe. That despite the fact that you have a gorgeous wife who loves you and you're raising fabulous children and you've got these, you know, award-winning greyhound dogs and, you know, you've got the Nobel Prize, you know, the fact that you are 75 pounds <laughs> overweight, you, that one error of, uh, of life discipline, you believe you deserve to have denuded all those other assets of any value because as a human being, if you haven't got your shit together on your weight, then you really deserve to be, you know, to throw all the rest of that away. Have I heard you correctly? And then they kind of, well, no, I don't really think that. I kind of go, then why are we talking like this? Not that you aren't <laughs> going to try to get rid of that weight, but right now your astonishment, why can't I just do this one thing? Because if I were any good, if I were really the person those other attributes describe, this wouldn't be true. But it is. It turns out you don't have to be thin to get the Nobel Prize. Uh, you know, um, and so, you know, you just have to, t- you know, are you, do you, do you actually agree with the embedded belief system in the way you're talking to yourself? And if you don't, change your mind. Right. And I'm guessing that the questions start with why can't I are not like favorite design questions. They're not very generous. I mean, well, it depends on the way you're, you're – I can imagine, you know, hey, why can't I do this? Why can't yeah. I do this? You know, if it's a rhetorical <laughs> judgment, no. If it's a curious lean, sure. It's all about tone. Ah, so you could you could change your tone and uh, change your life. Yeah. Like, huh. I do curiosity. Why, why can't I seem to get this weight off? Because I really like eating the food. And I'm so good at these other things. I deserve a reward. And I reward myself with food. Duh. I mean, I mean, I mean that, see that, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, your, your mindset, you know, we, that's why I say there's the design process and there's the design mindset. Mindset matters. Mm, I love that. That just with the tone of your voice, you changed from judgment to curiosity and it changed everything. Yeah. And then you have to be pretty darn honest with yourself. Um, I always ask, you know, when, when, when I'm in office hours with that thing, I asked, I asked, I'll ask my students. So, so you're doing this behavior, right? And you don't, and yeah, I'm doing it. It's terrible. And, um, and you don't like, and you don't like the outcomes. No, I don't like the outcomes. I'm, I'm eating too much or whatever it is, or I'm not studying or I'm procrastinating or I'm getting bad grades in this one class. And, and my question is always, okay, well, nobody's, you're not, you're a smart person. You're not stupid. Nobody does anything for a dumb reason. How does that serve you? Hmm. How does it serve you to continue to fail in this way? And and then the, the the little side voice that Dave just said comes out. Well, but I'm so successful in these other things, and I deserve a reward. And you know, and this is how I do it. And but it's like let's just unpack what's really going on here. 
because nobody does stuff. Uh, even, even, you know, addiction and other things, nobody started out saying, hey, you know what I really want to be is a heroin addict sitting in a gutter shooting up. Um, you know, that they started out by saying, this feels great. Right. And <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it's, there's a lot of brutal honesty in our method. And you know, like, why, you know, what you, you're doing it for a reason and not that knowing the reason necessarily changes anything, but let's be clear, right? Let's not, let's not deceive ourselves. Great. Well, this has been so amazing to, to talk to you guys, to, to get your spirit and your, your humor and your wisdom. I just want to, just want to say, as, as I was reading in the introduction, you had, you know, a bunch of questions that the book will help you answer. And one of them was, um, how can I be thin, sexy, and fabulously rich? And you yeah. said, we can help you answer all these questions except the last one. Right. So <laughs> I want to say, job, I wanna say that you've, right, yeah. you've, you've, you've now um, helped with at least two-thirds of those. <laughs> okay. Well, well we're happy to help you work on those issues, Howard. Those are tough issues. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So the book, again, is called Designing Your Life, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. Um, what an honor and a pleasure to have you sharing with us on podcast land today. Well, thank you. Thanks for the questions. It's great. Thanks, Howard. Have Take a great care. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the plant yourself podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes like this five-star one left by listener, Michael Miller from the U S on November 23rd titled one of the very best. Michael writes, Howard is a masterful interviewer with consistently interesting guests and topics. The podcast keeps me on track as I recover from an iatrogenic condition and do my best to drop out of the medical system. Iatrogenic, 50-cent word meaning caused by doctors. So, Michael, best wishes on your continued recovery, and thanks for your generous review of this podcast. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, we're starting up a new one in January 2018. Visit BigChangeProgram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to Dave and Bill's book and other stuff at PlantYourself.com slash 243. In garden news, the first of the three big compost bins is built. I got an idea from Geo, the same Geo who fixed my boom mic here, um, to, that I turned around and used straw bales instead of building extra walls. So when the straw bales end up degrading, guess what? They go right into the compost. So now we're filling it up with brush. If anyone has a spare BCS chipper shredder that they're not using and they would like to donate to the farm, let me know. Otherwise, we'll just uh, wait until there's enough money in the bank account to spend the 1500 bucks to get it ourselves. In running news, um, back on the Galloway plan, and not going as fast as I'd like, but putting in the miles, and this weekend I've got a uh, four one-mile sprints, so that should be fun in the nice cold of uh, Durham, North Carolina, and I'll let you know how that goes. It's thanks time. Thanks to Will Ridenauer, of course, for letting me use his beautiful song, Sabali Don. Can you hear it now? Coming up, swelling. And, of course, thanks to all of you podcast patrons. Got a couple of new ones today that I have not yet got permission to share your names. But uh, when I hear back, I'll, I'll add you for next time. But here's the roster. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Golkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stroller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Randall Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Patterson, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzik, Jeanette Benham, Gill, Sarah David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Dorona Viso, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Thunderberg, Lisa Rosen, Michael Warren, <laughs> The equally mysterious Tracy Zee, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rice with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Hollis, Martha Bergener, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levini, Inscrutable, Harry R. Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Michia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plan Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rutledge, Jill Watt, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Sharon Hirschman, Kate Roseland, Ayat, Julie Langholm, Edegard, Isa Tuzinwa, Colleen, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia. So close. Alicia Davis and Aviva Lael for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well. <laughs>